Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Noam Chomsky to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Described by the New York Times as arguably the most important intellectual alive, Noam Chomsky is a pioneering American linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, social critic, and political activist. Sometimes called the father of modern linguistics, Chomsky is also a major figure in analytic philosophy and one of the founders of the field of cognitive science. He has been a hugely influential figure in the international anti-war movement and an unrelenting critic of international power. In Manufacturing Consent, Chomsky, together with Edward Herman, skillfully analyzed the way in which the marketplace and the economics of publishing significantly shaped the news. He holds a joint appointment as Institute Professor Emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Laureate Professor at the University of Arizona and is the author of more than 100 books on topics such as linguistics, war, politics, and mass media. Thank you very much, Professor Chomsky, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Very glad to be with you. So there is no shortage of worrying environmental crisis at the moment. What's on your mind, Noam? Well, there are, it's not just the environmental crisis. Uh, that's severe enough. In fact, uh, one of the lead authors uh, of the IPCC report last year, which has since been updated and become more dire, uh, opened a recent article by saying, uh, let's not mince words. It's time to panic now. Uh, we're facing a imminent existential crisis. And unless something's done very fast, we're going to be finished, essentially. That's only one. We can come back to the details. We can, uh, the, uh, uh, there's another, which is equally serious, which is getting almost no attention, uh, namely the, uh, the crisis of uh, the increasing threat of nuclear war. Uh, If you look over the record of the last 75 years, it's kind of a miracle that we've survived, and it's now getting much worse. Uh, President Trump, as you know, has just uh, dismantled uh, one of the most important uh, arms control treaties, the Reagan-Gorbachev INF Treaty. That's gone. And to ram it home, they... Trump immediately, his administration immediately uh, tested a missile uh, which violates the treaty, uh, virtually entreating the Russians to please match us and let's go on and uh, work to murder each other. Uh, he's charged uh, they've, uh, they're very, they're, they will apparently uh, destroy the Open Skies Treaty initiated by Eisenhower, which again has reduced threat seriously. And they've made it pretty clear that if re-elected, they won't uh, renew the Open START Treaty, the New START Treaty, which uh, 
is the light which essentially ends the arms control regime. Uh, that's uh, applauded by the weapons manufacturers, but for the rest of us, it means that the door is open uh, to the United States, Russia, others uh, to develop uh, even more destructive uh, uh, weapons. Uh, already, we can destroy the world a thousand times over and eliminate the barriers to uh, use them. And then furthermore, uh, tensions are developing, uh, which uh, partly for in the Middle East, for example, uh, Trump's uh, withdrawal, destruction of the joint agreement with Iran opens the door to uh, a, poss a possible uh, war simply by accident because of the tensions in the region, aside from other negative characteristics. And all of this is uh, happening right before us. Going back to the climate issue, which is extremely dire, but only one of a number of such uh, threats, uh, most of the world is doing at least something. It's inadequate, but something or other to uh, uh, deal with the uh, imminent threat. Uh, the United States, uh, the most powerful uh, privileged country in world history, is uh, also doing something about it, namely under the Republican administration, is racing to catastrophe as with uh, true dedication, and supported, of course, by the energy corporations, uh, which are uh, happily opening up uh, new areas to exploitate, of exploitation so that they can increase the production of fossil fuels. Uh, the big banks, which are pouring money into investments to support it, uh, all supported by the uh, Trump administration, which, uh, and it's not just him, but the entire Republican Party, which is, as I've said before, has become the most dangerous organization in human history. Uh, recently, incidentally, it's of some interest to see how it happened. So back, you go back to 2008, the Republican candidate, uh, uh, John McCain, actually ran on a program which included uh, uh, some insufficient, but at least some measures to deal with, uh, uh, with uh, global warming. The party itself was uh, considering uh, cap-and-trade, uh, other measures, again, insufficient, but at least something. Uh, when wind of this got to the Koch brothers, the huge private uh, energy corporation, multi-billion dollar energy corporation, uh, when news of this got to them, they were uh, uh, infuriated. They had been trying for years to turn the Republican Party into a denialist party for obvious reasons. Now they, David Koch, one of the brothers, launched a huge juggernaut uh, to try to force the party to reverse this mild deviation towards sanity, and then bribing senators, uh, intimidating senators, a uh, huge lobbying campaign, uh, concocting a fake... Uh, uh, popular organizations to knock on doors and so on and so forth. Uh, within a short time, everyone, the whole party capitulated. And now uh, 
uh, that's a mantra for the party that either nothing is happening or maybe it is, but we shouldn't do anything about it and let's just race to disaster. Uh, that's what the world is facing right now. An administration which is racing to disaster on two fronts. One, uh, to destroy uh, the environment in which organized human life can survive. And the other, to open the doors to the rapid escalation of uh, development of highly destructive weapons uh, uh, with, uh, uh, again, a race towards mutual destruction. Uh, unfortunately, that's the world we're now living in. Do you feel there's been a shift in awareness? We've seen it's such a polar. It's been such a polarized landscape in America, particularly. I mean, in other countries too. Particularly in America, we've seen you know Greta Thunberg, young people, Extinction Rebellion. It seems that something is afoot. Social protest is having an impact. Does that give you a little bit of optimism? How much can we achieve? How important is social protest? Oh, quite a lot. In fact, uh, just look at the record. Uh, I mentioned the Reagan Gorbachev Treaty, 1987 INF Treaty, uh, which did significantly reduce the threat of the uh, criminal war. You take a look at the background for that. The background was enormous uh, public mobilizations and protests in Europe and in the United States uh, against uh, nuclear weapons development. Now, that created an environment in which the leadership could uh, take important stands. And that can happen again. Uh, the uh, climate strike uh, last month was a real inspiring event. Uh, maybe seven or eight million people seem to have been involved around the world, including the United States. Uh, the actions of Extinction Rebellion are extremely significant. Uh, in the United States, uh, Sunrise Movement, a relatively small group of young people, uh, was carrying out direct actions, including uh, sit-ins in uh, congressional offices, uh, Nancy Pelosi's office. They got some support from the young uh, congressional uh, uh, representatives in Congress who had just been elected on the uh, Sanders wave, the wave of uh, popular activism that uh, Bernie Sanders is responsible for. The main one was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave strong support to it, uh, to uh, Ed Markey, uh, uh, Massachusetts uh, senator. And they managed to put on the legislative agenda something that's critically important and seemed unthinkable a year or two ago, namely some form of Green New Deal. Uh, something like that has to be enacted and enacted soon. And they made a huge step in that direction. Now, of course, it will be vetoed by the Republican Senate and the crazed president who are dedicated to destruction. But it's a step forward and uh, it can be carried forward even beyond. Uh, even the Republican Party is not unreachable. After all, it was just one decade ago when they were moving towards a degree of sanity before they were often intimidated. Uh, so that, that yes. change can happen. And it's not a matter of uh, uh, 
is it possible? It has to be possible. Going back to the article by the, from the IPCC leader I quoted before, it is time to panic now, not just on the environment, also on uh, uh, the enormous threat of uh, uh, nuclear war. There are other problems in the background which are serious enough, but these are the overwhelming and imminent ones. Unless we take care of these, nothing else is going to matter. Yes, I, I, the, the, talking about this movement, in, 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 and David Roberts in Vox wrote recently something that I, I was interested. He's saying that, you know, that the, the, the US right will transition seamlessly from climate denialism to climate nationalism and fascism, acknowledge the threat, and use it to justify exploiting US fossil fuel reserves, building walls, shutting down immigration. And I guess underlying this is is an idea that you know the, the, that things have shifted. It's really not so credible anymore to deny it. But actually, there are forces that would turn this in another direction. That would say, well, yes, maybe it is happening, uh, or it actually is happening, and it's very worrying. But what we need to do is close down. We've got to stop immigration and things like that. Do you see that as plausible? Well, it's happening, so it's plausible. The question is, can it succeed? There is a general background that we have to be very clear about. You look all over the world, there's uh, uprisings and anger, resentment, uh, uh, contempt for existing institutions takes different form in different countries, but uh, the whole world is kind of aflame with this. Now, there are particular reasons in particular countries. So the reasons it's happening in Chile are not identical to the reasons why it's happening uh, uh, next door in Ecuador or across the world in Lebanon or Iraq. Uh, but there are some commonalities. Uh, they're very striking in uh, the United States and uh, uh, the developed countries of Europe. Uh, this is all against the background of 40 years of uh, economic and social policy, generally called neoliberalism, uh, took off with Reagan and Thatcher spread around much of the world. Uh, its uh, consequences were predictable, and we now see them very strikingly. Uh, the consequences of the policies were sharp uh, increase in the concentration of wealth, uh, pretty much stagnation for the majority. So uh, real wages in the United States today uh, have about the same purchasing power as they did in the 1970s before the neoliberal assault began. Uh, reduction of benefits uh, exacerbated in Europe by the austerity policies written in the continent. Uh, of course, all of the obvious consequences of the co this concentration of wealth is almost indescribable. So in the United States by now, 0.1%, uh, not 1%, 0.1% of the population has over 20% of the wealth. And uh, over half the population is uh, has negative net worth. So debts outweighing assets, meaning almost nothing to rely on if uh, the most... Uh, Anything disruptive happens in life, an automobile accident or whatever. Now, furthermore, 
there's a lot of talk about unemployment, the employment and how how low the unemployment is. That's highly misleading. For one thing, you're called employed if you work one hour a week. For another thing, studies have shown that the and everyone you can, you can, people know it without the studies that the job market has become much more precarious. So people are called employed if they have temporary jobs or jobs where they can be called by the employer and say, you can't work this week or you have to work double this week or you don't have any security. People are really living on the edge. The number of jobs with wages below the median or half has just increased very sharply in recent years. So when people talk, uh, uh, some talk about uh, the average wage rising, but take that apart, what it means at the very top is huge increases, and down below there's stagnation or decline. Uh, this is the one or another form. This is the circumstance in which people are living around the world. It's fertile territory for uh, demagogues who exploit uh, scapegoats, uh, typically people even more uh, vulnerable than yourself. And here we're back to what you said, uh, immigrants, uh, African-Americans, Muslims, whoever the immediate target is. When people are angry, frightened, and resentful, it isn't hard for demagogues to plow that sort of seen it many times in the past, we're seeing it all over the world today. So yes, the crises are very real. Uh, attention is being diverted away from them towards scapegoats who are not the reason for the crisis, but are easy to uh, denounce and attack the vulnerable. And uh, that's, uh, unfortunately, that's the kind of situation we're looking at around the world. You mentioned the Green New Deal. How important is the Green New Deal? It's been criticized by, uh, I guess what you'd say, some predictable uh, voices in, in America, that it's in the left wing, economic program, big government, uh, you know, uh, putting everything under federal control. But you, you mentioned that this is, 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 is quite a, 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 an important move. How important is it? Oh, it's very important. Um, the, uh, there is... Uh a massive propaganda to demonize the government. So, you know, back to Reagan's slogan, the government is the problem, not the solution. There's a footnote to that. If you diminish the, you diminish the role of government in decision-making, you're increasing the role of someone else. It's not the population. You're increasing the role of unaccountable private power. They would be delighted to see the role of the government decline, except, of course, in serving them. They've got to make sure that the government continues to devote itself to satisfying the needs of the very rich and corporate power, like Trump's tax cut, for example, and for them, not for anyone else. Uh, but the burdens have to be placed on the public. And uh, uh, the uh, so protects say, the health care system, which is an utter scandal in the United States. It has about double the costs of comparable countries, and it has absolutely the worst outcomes. 
recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association just confirms it again as the highest mortality, the worst infant mortality, double the spending costs. Now, where is it going? It's a semi, it's mostly privatized system. So it's extraordinarily inefficient. Massive administrative costs, a huge amount of bureaucracy, huge salaries for the uh, executives, uh, monopolization, either both local and national of major facilities. So in a particular locality, there'll be one, maybe two options for healthcare. They can, of course, raise the prices as they like and reduce the services as they like. Uh, the government supports huge uh, uh, profits for the pharmaceutical corporations. A lot of this is written into the uh, fraudulent free trade agreements. They're not free trade agreements. They're highly protectionist for say, pharmaceutical companies and so on. The government supports that. Uh, all of this leads to enormous costs on individuals. Well, when rational proposals are introduced, like Medicare for all, the immediate cry is, oh, that's going to raise taxes, therefore we can't do it. Yeah, it'll slightly raise taxes, especially for the rich, but it will sharply cut costs for everyone else, for everyone. Even for the rich, it will cut costs. Although, you know, they'll pay a little bit in higher taxes. But once you say something is, it's going to be uh, taxes, it's going to be government, then it's demonized. And you can understand very well why private power, private wealth, want to demonize the government. Uh, the government, with all of its flaws, is at least partially responsible for the general population. Uh, unaccountable private tyrannies, corporations, they're not accountable at all. Uh, the big banks are not accountable. Uh, they, you know, there's a lot of fraud about uh, consumer democracy and so on. Forget about that. The facts are very clear. So going back to your point, yes, there's huge propaganda against big government, meaning against having the public have a say in decision-making. The rich and powerful don't want that. Not hard to explain why. And overcoming that Massive propaganda is a very serious task. Actually, there's a point I'll have to leave in a minute, but there's a general point that's rarely discussed, although it's clear enough so that any child can understand it. Uh, the point is that the people's at the general public attitude towards taxes is a pretty good measure of how well democracies function. So let's imagine a society that's really a, a very well-functioning democracy. That means people get together, informed people get together, they deliberate, they decide on uh, the uh, needs and wants that they have, uh, they figure out ways to uh, fund it, so it has to be funded, uh, then they, uh, uh, and then the tax day comes along and they celebrate. It's a day of celebration. We've decided what we want, what kind of life we want. is our decision. We've decided how to pay for it. Now we're doing it. What could be better? That's a functioning democracy. Let's take a society where it's 
taxes are hated and feared, uh, where the slogans like uh, the only things you can't avoid are death and taxes, where April 15th in the United States, the day you pay your taxes, is considered a day of mourning. Well, that's a society in which democracy is not functioning. Uh, you're having something imposed on you that, that the alien force out there called the government, which has nothing to do with me, is stealing my money. As the opposite of democracy. Well, that's a pretty good way to measure uh, the nature of functioning democracy in different societies. And it tells you something that's uh, valuable to understand. Uh, so, again, yes, there will be humanization of big government, namely of popular democracy, which is a call for uh, not having the government act, but having private, unaccountable tyrannies run the country the way they pretty much do anyway, but even more. Yeah, fi finally then, so besides government regulation, now, what potential is there to deal with untrammeled corporate power and the impact on the environment? I mean, the corporate power is dedicated to destroying the environment. It's, it's, I suppose you're, the, you're Jamie Dimon, the CEO of the, the biggest bank in the United States, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, what choices do you have within a system of uh, basically business-run society, market-based business-run society? Uh, what you have is two choices. One, you can try to maximize profits, uh, which means funding uh, fossil fuel production, including the most dangerous, like Canadian tar sands, that'll increase profits. Your other choice is uh, uh, to say, I'm not going to do that, in which case you get kicked out or replaced by somebody else who will do it. Now, that's implicit in the structure of the system. Now, it can be changed, but only by popular action to impose regulations and costs that are, in my opinion, to eliminate private power altogether. But that's another story and a different time dimension. Within the existing time dimension, there are many steps that are taken. Uh, the sensible, detailed proposals for a Green New Deal or some of them, uh, which would, even within existing institutions with their uh, repressive and uh, illegitimate uh, hierarchic structures, even within that system, uh, can uh, modify, compel modification of behavior so that uh, what are called the externalities are not free. They have to pay for them. They have to reduce them. They have to eliminate. Uh, they have to impose emissions control. They have to move to uh, net zero carbon emission and fast. Yeah. In your earlier work, you highlighted the key role the U.S. government played in developing key Silicon Valley technologies, which then U.S. corporations privatized. Is there a role? What role for, for corporations in the Green New Deal? Is it okay for them to maximize their profits on the back of green policies? Well, there has to be a place for them because they exist. And the possibility of uh, moving to a different, a radically different social structure is simply on a, I think it's a desideratum, but it's, and we can be working for it. But the timeline, is totally different from the timeline of what is required to deal with the urgent crises. So it has to be done within the 
is pretty much the framework of existing institutions. We just don't have the time. So yes, things can be set up so that uh, um, corporations can come, become involved in, uh, say, uh, um, uh, developing wind power, uh, solar energy, uh, and so on. But they have to be compelled uh, by government power, which means political, popular political force, to modify their set of choices so that they will lead to a sustainable existence instead of destruction of organized human life. That can be done. The detailed Green New Deal proposals in Elvis Talons, for example, will take this kind of thing into account. So there are uh, whatever one thinks about the desirability of eliminating uh, existing repressive and hierarchic institutions. Personally, I think that's a high priority, but whatever one's views on that, uh, the existing crisis has to be faced within the framework of existing institutions modified and controlled by popular power. We just don't have choices about that. Thank you so much, Noam. Have you some advice for individuals? We're all implicated via our personal consumption and our plastic bags, our driving, our, our, our carbon footprint. Clearly, that's part of the picture um, and we can you know, do important work there. But more broadly, at a social level, or, 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 or what, what, what would you say to people? Everyone has to be conscious of this. We have to modify and adjust their lives not to a different kind of lifestyle which is not which I think is a preferable lifestyle uh, so for example uh, uh, there's nothing delightful about sitting for several hours a day in uh, the horrible traffic jams uh, to try to get to work and back it can be done efficiently and much more pleasantly with efficient mass transportation and a reduction in the use of automobiles. Okay, that's that. That's a change of lifestyle, but it improves lifestyle. Uh, same thing if you uh, say uh, uh, move to, if you weatherize your home. Okay, save electric, you save the power bill. You live more comfortably. There's many things that can be done uh, and have to be done, and we shouldn't think that they. Uh, necessarily impose a burden they might make life much, much more livable and uh, decent but it has to be done however individual choices while important uh, don't measure up against the massive uh, choices on a national and global level that must be undertaken that's where the real burden is uh, so we can stop using plastic bags as we should in our own lives uh, but the real problem is uh, to prevent uh, Royal Dutch Shell, for example, to create a huge new uh, production facility, as they're doing right now, with great fanfare, uh, to produce more non-biodegradable uh, uh, plastic bags. Now, the big problems are at the higher level. Individual choices make a difference, uh, but participation in popular activism, which will affect the major power systems. That's the primary goal. Uh, um, That's a fantastic vision. And thank you so much, Noam.
for all the work you've done and thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.